tonight our guest is the Reverend Boyoung Lee, PhD, Dean of the Faculty at Iliff School of Theology here in Denver. Dr. Lee is an expert in post-colonial theology, feminist theology, and in pedagogy as well, and has brought a lot of her wisdom and expertise on pedagogy um, to Iliff School of Theology since she was appointed in 2017. Um, I have great admiration of Dr. Lee, and we've gotten to work together on uh, one project about public theology. Um, and part of what Malhite theology is, is really public theology, just doing theology in public that is concerned about um, kind of our common life in our country and specifically in Denver. So let's give Dr. Lee a round of applause and welcome to Malhite Theology. Thank you. Thank you. So first of all, thank you so much for being with us tonight to on the podcast. Um, Dr. Lee, if you would just tell us a little bit about what a day in your life looks like. That's a million dollar question. <laughs> um, I uh, start waking up uh, between 5.20 and uh, 5.40. And when I wake up, uh, I start uh, my day with the prayers. Mm. Um, I grew up in a family that my parents uh, get up at 3 o'clock every morning. They're Koreans living in Korea. And they say that they have about 300 people on their list for whom they pray every day. Oh, my goodness. And uh, every Korean church has an early morning prayer service starting at 5 o'clock. So they go to their church before 4 o'clock. They pray for over an hour and then short about 20, 30-minute service, and then they remain for another 40 minutes or so and pray and come home. So I grew up in that kind of a family. So I get up (laughs) and start uh, praying, and my prayer includes Facebook too. So what I do, uh, I open my Facebook, and I click, birthday list of that day. Uh, my friends uh, Facebook, some I know, some I have no idea who they are, but uh, they requested to be my friends, right? So I peruse their pages and then I pray for them each day. Um, so um, so I think that a practice um, really shapes my day as dean that not only and I work with uh, people that I quite know really well, and there are a lot of uh, people that uh, I do not know, but uh, uh, that our work together uh, makes difference, uh, whether positive or negative. And I don't know all of my students either, but uh, uh, um, you know, some of my Facebook friends are my students, and, uh, but my prayer includes uh, ILIF students and then all the connections I have, uh, people I know. So that's uh, that, that, and then I start uh, coffee, uh, light breakfast, and I try to be in my office uh, before 9. And depending on the day, uh, it, uh, every day looks different. Mm-hmm. But a lot of my time is um, in meetings, uh, student affairs meetings, and uh, I live uh, um, senior leadership team meetings, uh, faculty meetings, and new project meetings, and student crisis intervention meetings, oh and goodness. all kinds of meetings. Uh, 
and but I also try to um, carve out some time to have fun. So sometimes when I need uh, um, to have uh, some sort of like a light conversation or mentoring type of a conversation with my colleagues, sometimes I take them to um, Denver Botanic Garden and have uh, lunch and then walk around and that's our conversation time and process wow. together. I try to do that and also uh, knowing that, you know, how much time I spend in meetings, uh, I um, made the investment, uh, meaning that I bought treadmill desk for my office. That's awesome. So I often stand, and when I do light emails, I walk in the office. <laughs> and uh, uh, Broderick uh, told, uh, told you that I moved to, uh, I live uh, in 2017. And before that, I lived in um, San Francisco Bay Area for 15 years. So over there, I used to walk four to six miles every day. Um, and my day was always packed, but even in the evening, I lived in Berkeley. And I would drive three or four blocks to downtown, leave my car, and then walk from one end to the other end. And I get to know all those uh, our homeless neighbors uh, and find their names, and they get to know me, and they try to protect me sometimes. So, uh, but I realize the Denver weather and 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 my job and uh, doesn't allow me to do that much. So I try to. Um, include uh, that walking time or mindful time uh, into my daily work as much as I can. So, Amazing. And then and when I go home and after dinner, uh, I do also some exercise and, and I need to decompress so that uh, my usually at home, unless there is an urgent project at work, I try to do my scholarly work in the evening, yeah. so which means writing and reading. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. So, if you would, Dr. Lee, tell us about, you and I got to chat a little bit before our conversation tonight, kind of about your journey to the United States. Mm -hmm. And you grew up in a devout Christian home. You felt a sense of calling to ordain ministry from the age of 13. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the challenges you faced um, yes. in your journey toward ordination. Yes. Uh, uh, around age 13, um, I followed my parents uh, to early morning prayer service, and my dad was a Korean Marine officer, so I'm a military brat, mm -hmm. and I grew up in military bases, and uh, Usually, uh, the, within military, you know, I grew up in a, a very challenging time in Korea, um, 60s, 70s, and 80s, and very developing country at that time, even though uh, we now have a Samsung and LG and, you know, <laughs> a 5G phone opened that last week, and but uh, it was nothing like that that time. So, but uh, sort of like I lived, uh, grew up in a very... Um, protected environment in military base in extremely beautiful nature. And one morning I came out of the church and suddenly everything, uh, trees and leaves, you know, the grasses and uh, uh, flowers, everything looked different, felt different, and they were so alive. Wow. And I started crying, 13 years old opening church door, looking at what's uh, around, and started crying that, oh, my God, this uh, is absolutely beautiful. And 
God created all of this for me. And what, what, what can I do uh, with this and for this beauty that I felt that I need to, I, I felt the urge to do something. Going to college was a bigger culture shock than coming to this country, actually, <laughs> because I realized what I learned in our history and social studies class up until that moment was not completely true. Mm. And I be completely disoriented, uh, you know, became disoriented, and I didn't know what to believe, but didn't know what to do with it either. But I w and in the, in the meantime, I was recruited by what we called the uh, uh, underground circle, uh, student with a social consciousness, uh, uh, working for democratization of the country and then uh, reading uh, um, critical books uh, that are mostly banned by uh, military governments. Uh, so I was exposed to do that, um, but many stories uh, you know, related to that, uh, my father's job and my, my involvement in that created some crisis in the family. So instead, I chose to volunteer to work at uh, a Buddhist uh, church in Korea and uh, Korea hosted the Olympics in 88, but in at uh, early 80s, 84, I, 85, 6, 7, uh, the church I worked at um, didn't have, a, many people uh, didn't have a more than junior high education, especially women gave up their high school education to support their family and their brother's education and all that. So uh, I thought that I had to do that to give something back as a, someone typically from middle class family. But um, they taught me through their actions what it means to be a living Christian. Mm. And they were working uh, seven to eight uh, every day, Monday through even Saturday. And then on Sunday, they were so thrilled to be uh, with others at a church community, giving and providing and service to others uh, even. So um, they really taught me what it means to be a living Christian, uh, also embodying what you believe in your actions. And then, and they um, also challenged me to join them because uh, uh, they were living in illegal huts uh, built, built on government land. Government wanted to wipe that area out so that we are ready for Olympics, which means looking good. So government wow. was building high-rise apartment complex and they had uh, no place to go to. So they invited me to join them. And it was, and so I joined them, but it was not a political choice, it was my pastoral choice. So as I was doing that, we were all uh, criticized and blamed by church leadership that, that we are doing unchristian things, meaning challenging governments established by God quoting Romans 13. Mm. So that really led me to think about what should I do? And there is no way that I could be ordained. Um, still, uh, the largest denomination in South Korea doesn't ordain women. And, but uh, around that time, I realized that the Korean Methodist Church ordained women, and actually, Korean Methodist churches studied ordaining women 20 years prior to Methodist churches in this country. But there is one rule for women. Women ordained the clergy had to be single for the rest of their life and they are not allowed to be married. 
So I said, okay, uh, they are doing something better, but this is not the rule that I could support uh, as if this is God's rule, and I don't think I have a calling to be a single life. So I didn't want to support it either. So I didn't know what to do, but these poor people, poor women, they charged me, you need to be ordained. You need to leave home. You need to be ordained. You need to have our voice be heard. So to do that, to fulfill my calling also to accept their charge, I didn't have any other way but leave home. So that led me to come to this country in 1991, and I landed in Southern California, did my Master of Divinity. During the process, I have also discovered that I have a search, such a love for serious academic work. Mm. So I moved to Boston and did my PhD at Jesuit School, Boston College. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, two days after my dissertation proposal was approved, I got ordained. And I was uh, sent to a white congregation in Connecticut by my bishop. And the church was 125 years old. That they never had a non-white pastor before, not a lone woman. So I was there for four years, wow. and I tried to finish my dissertation, but it didn't go anywhere. According to my advisor, my dissertation is becoming like a church newsletter. <laughs> <laughs> no offense, no. Evans. Yeah, because you know, the context matters, right? <laughs> That's the context I was immersed in. But it was a great ministry together, and we did something great things together. And and then while I was there, I also met uh, my spouse there, mm. and then uh, in Connecticut, in Connecticut, and wow. non-white, uh, non-Korean person, and you know, actually white, uh, United Methodist, a pastor and human rights lawyer. Mm. And then um, my fourth year, uh, suddenly uh, my job um, came to me, or you know, th- that's how I like to describe uh, academic job landed on uh, on me. So we moved, we got married in February, I got job offer in April, and June we are in Berkeley. Wow. And what year was that that you 2002. Amazing. So I was uh, uh, in, you know, Berkeley uh, for 15 years, uh, although I lived uh, uh, throughout the uh, Bay Area. Amazing. And then 2017, another call I felt that uh, Dean never had a, um, never attracted me, mm-hmm. <laughs> but something happened there, so I felt it as a call, so I moved to Denver. Amazing. So if you would, tell us a little bit about how your experience, your lived experience, led you to become this esteemed uh, post-colonial theologian and feminist theologian. Well, I don't, I, you know, thank you for saying esteemed, but that's what I ha- uh, do with a passion. So, you know, growing up uh, in a country like Korea that is occupied by military dictators whose back was uh, supported by the United States government. That hmm. massacre happened in 1980 that killed uh, uh, hundreds of people and still some missing people. It all happened under U.S. watch hmm. because I know the United States uh, didn't, uh, couldn't uh, afford a government that, that is uh, too progressive at the time because uh, 
China and Russia, and it, it was a Soviet Union at that time. So they want to have a government in South Korea that um, that is a very cooperative U.S. government. And so new, you know, the, the uh, spring movement was not what they were expecting at that time. Mm. So those at this larger, uh, the colonial or uh, imperial context, uh, so to speak. And then working with uh, these very, very poor people and women, the you know, young women I worked with, uh, age between age 18 and 25, 26, who had only um, um, ninth grade education mostly, working for um, transnational uh, factory, uh, in a garment factory, uh, working very high end, you know, uh, companies that might making very high end uh, women's uh, underwears, <laughs> like maybe Victoria's, you know, secret type of underwears, mm -hmm. but they cannot make even ends meet. Uh, so, and then you know we t preach gospel that the, you know, God is with you, but they are struggling and they cannot make any sense uh, out of uh, their life situations. So what do we say? You know, who is God? And you know, do we just pray and pray? And that God is an only, uh, you know, spiritual, or uh, is God charging us to change unjust the system? Mm -hmm. Because you know, as I said earlier, you know, when they asked me to join their fight, it was my pastoral, uh, you know, answer, not political choice. Although I was uh, having very progressive political stance, mm -hmm. but. When my parishioners invite me to stand next to them when they try to keep their homes, house, livelihood, um, how do I make uh, sense of that situation, not only for myself, for, for them? And then at the same time, they're blamed and criticized by church leaders that they are doing unchristian things. Mm. So that gave me a lot of questions. And so all good Christian is, you know, has to do is pray and then wait and then get a blessed life after death. And I didn't think that is a Jesus message, you know, because you start reading the Bible and it's a such radical message that Jesus preached. But why, why don't do that? Why we spiritualize everything? Mm -hmm. That is my deep question. So that led me to study, you know, like, uh, for instance, the Bible. Um, what's the background? You know, in, the, in seminary, uh, we learn uh, what we call historical criticisms, literary criticisms, uh, form criticisms uh, to, uh, to read the Bible. So historical criticisms uh, through, quote, unquote, scientific research, you try to understand uh, what was the background of that text. And then... Usually, you you know, you uh, through exegesis, uh, you uh, come up with oh, what it meant in, mm -hmm. at that time, and then we tend to assume that uh, what it meant at the time can be uh, applied to us now. And then literary criticisms are looking at the literary forms uh, to make sense of that particular genre, or form criticism similar, but it uh, that didn't give me a full answer. Mm. So through, uh, through my you know, ongoing studies, especially during my doctoral program, the Bible itself was written in such imperial context in ancient times. Think about Israel, even ancient Israel, King David's time. 
you know, it, the Bible portrays King David as if he was the ruler of all. But it was a tiny, tiny country. If you go to Israel, from northern Israel to southern Israel, it takes about two and a half hours. And you can see Jordan from one end to the other end. Mm -hmm. It's a very small country. So King David being ruler is very like a, uh, their own exaggerated story, right? So if you look at what is going on, it's a never, they, it, Israel never um, had a time that, did, that was not threatened by superpower in Near East, uh, Assyria, mm. Babylonia, Persia, Greece, and Roman Empire. They, you know, what's recorded in the Bible, it's not history, but it's a, their own faith confession, their own reflection. Some, often those stories are written after the fact because they couldn't make any sense over their life context. <coughs> we believe in God. Why these things are happening to us? Right? So um, sometimes, uh, you know, um, to, to make sense out of their situation, some other, some other times uh, leaders uh, to encourage uh, their uh, people stay uh, in hope that sometimes they need to come up with a small story, make a small story, bigger story, as if, uh, you know, we are the chosen ones. Eventually we will be the successor. We will be the winner, even though it, it's not happening right now. Mm -hmm. So to understand uh, what's, uh, what, what's going on in, in the biblical times, both in Hebrew Bible and New Testament, uh, we really have to pay attention to those imperial politics and why they were doing what, we're, uh, they were doing, what they were doing to the small countries. So Bible was um, produced in such context. Mm -hmm. And then uh, if you look at you know, how Christianity moved uh, throughout the history, in uh, Western European context, uh, how Bible uh, has been interpreted cannot be separated from European empires, different empires, mm -hmm. imperial policies. And often you hear story that the uh, crusade, you know, they were guaranteed if you, you know, conquer and make Muslims, how many Muslims, uh, 1,000 Muslims, uh, Christians, whatever, that you will have a mansion in heaven. You know, those things are often, are often guaranteed. So these people would go there with a Bible and a sword and kill people, thinking that they will have a big award, a big mansion in heaven. And so this very much in you know, Western imperialism was uh, uh, married to how Bible has been interpreted. I have a colleague um, who teaches New Testament at Yale Divinity School. She's a Taiwanese-American, Li Jian uh, Lin, what we call Jian Jian Lin. She has a very interesting book uh, from Oxford University Press, uh, came out about four or five years ago. So she's looking at how biblical interpretation method uh, in 18th, 19th century have been developed um, in European context that is very much uh, correlated to um, theory of a species, uh, race, biology. Mm. So, you know, in those days, uh, biology was uh, dividing human race, Negro, Mongols, and uh, uh, Europeans. And there was a hierarchy there. And then very similar pattern. And uh, she shows uh, you know, how it is such uh, biblical scholars were imp influenced by that quote-unquote science uh, that influenced the biblical method um, of interpretation. So those are so biblical interpretation method itself is not happening in a vacuum, but it was happening in such an um, imperial context with a political agenda. And so 
when you read the Bible, we, we also have to think about uh, how those in, you know, the particular uh, historical context that influenced the, the, the nature of the interpretation. Uh, case in point, the word hell, hmm. hell, right? So in uh, New Testament, when Jesus talks about hell, uh, the word it is used uh, in uh, um, Hebrew is uh, Gehenna, which means name of a place. Outside of Jerusalem, there is a town called Gehenna. Uh, it is a town known for uh, being a garbage dump. And so what that, that the origin of the town was that the going back to um, a book of uh, um, Kings, King Josiah. Uh, and um, we're Episcopalians, so we're not as familiar with the Bible. Okay. So, um, <laughs> so the book of Kings is in the Hebrew, Hebrew Bible. Bible. And talks about, uh, it's their own Israel, uh, you know, the ancient Hebrew people's narrative about uh, what happened to them because uh, it gives a, uh, their own interpretive historical perspectives on why they didn't survive. Mm -hmm. So it is uh, through the particular historical lens, what we call Deuteronomist uh, uh, lens, that uh, no matter what king did well, if king was not faithful to God, the king was described as the worst human being, worst king ever. One example is King Ahab who married to the Jezebel and then the stole uh, 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 Naboth's um, vineyard mm -hmm. that is a very fertile area in northern Israel right now. Uh, king Ahab was, uh, uh, in, from secular perspective, uh, he was the best king in, in Israel because uh, he brought economic prosperity. But he was married to King uh, Jezebel, who was not from uh, uh, Hebrew a clan, he, she brought her own gods and goddesses. So regardless of what Ahab did, because of that, he was the worst of the worst in Israeli history, according to that Book of Kings. So if you kept reading the Book of Kings, uh, there is a king called uh, King Josiah mm -hmm. uh, who discovered the uh, scrolls of the Bible somewhere hidden in Jerusalem temple. Mm -hmm. And so he started reading it that was um, uh, early, uh, the you know, book, uh, first of five books in Hebrew Bible. And he says, oh, my goodness, God led us and, and the God of, you know, Abraham and all that. God uh, led us all uh, this through Exodus, and then God chose us. But what have we done? We, we, did, we don't even know who this God is. So he had a sort of like a self-conversion. So he decided to get rid of all um, gods and goddess statues uh, from temple, and all you know, he banned all non-Jewish uh, religious practices. That, that was very popular around that time. So all those statues, everything, were burnt at location called Gehenna. So that became the symbol. That became a symbol of unpleasant place. Mm -hmm. So when Jesus talked about your, you know, you, you, your, uh, your life will be like a hell. Did he literally mean that you will live in Gehenna or what? So it was a very metaphorical term that you just used, that, that the life without God, that you are driven by your uh, uncertainty and uh, insecurity. That, so in, in John chapter 15, 
don't worry about uh, your future and uh, I am leaving, but uh, the Holy mm -hmm. Spirit will come with you. Literally, don't worry. That is uh, some uh, Bible translation is uh, uh, translated as uh, uh, don't let your heart small. Don't make your heart become small. Mm -hmm. You know, think about when your heart gets shrink because when you are nervous, when you are not comfortable. Mm -hmm. So Jesus was saying that. And so, uh, you know, in metaphorically, that uh, when that is happening, that you are only, you know, looking over your shoulder and what others are going to tell, you know, think about me, all that, mm -hmm. you are driven by that, you live in a hell. So then that, that, that was when Bible was translated in Greek, Jesus, uh, it was, uh, not Jesus, but that, that they chose, the, they didn't know what to do, so they chose the language Haiti, which is a Greek mythological place, like mm -hmm. Hercules in talking about Haiti. So does Jesus mean we are going to a Greek mythological place? Hmm. It's a metaphorical. And then when Bible was translated into England, English, uh, in you know, um, but 17th century, mm -hmm. what is going on in England? Uh, uh, Cromwell and uh, uh, he wanted to build um, the uh, the Odyssey mm -hmm. in, uh, and that's the you know. Uh, around the time also English Reformation that is all connected, right? So when uh, he tried to make um, England a, a British Empire, God-fearing uh, country, and and uh, he used the Bible to get rid of uh, all of his opponents, and mm -hmm. a lot of people were tortured and killed in down cellar, which is a, sort of like a basement place dark and uh, very, a lot of people, you know, killed and tortured. Mm. So when Bible was translated into English, yeah, what do we do with this uh, Haiti or Gehenna? And they chose to translate that as a hell because that's yeah, what people could associate with, right? And then another interesting tweet, uh, when Bible was translated into Korean in 19th century, mm -hmm. they didn't know what to do with it. So they borrowed a term from Buddhist Buddhism. So in Korea, uh, the, the hell is translated in this word called the jiok, uh, which a Buddhist term that uh, you are eternally tortured, and your your body is uh, you know being put in boiling water and you know burning burning um, uh, fire, and you are in eternal uh, agony. Uh, that's mm -hmm. a Buddhist term. So Korean uh, uh, Christians. Uh, uh, adopted the Buddhist term to translate hell. So it became totally different thing than Gehenna. So if you look at the, the history, all context is attached to it. Yes. And, but what happened was when the Christianity um, went to other parts of the world from Europe, you know, those translation and then with a sword and Bible and then the threatening uh, of uh, you know, going to hell, the message went there. And it, this is very married to imperialistic uh, agenda mm -hmm. of uh, European empires. And, and then those interpretations, because Christianity has been Western religion, that agenda st still continues. So the reason why I'm interested in mm -hmm. the very long answer to your very mm -hmm. short question is uh, I wanted to unearth these things. And so especially, you know, I wanted to make uh, um, God's liberating message to be available to uh, people like all of us. Wow. That, uh, and I don't think it is possible for us to recover what original meant, but I, at, at least my 
job as a theologian is to expose to unearth, you know, you know, these uh, political agenda, and and then you you know give your options to read through different lenses. I'm Broderick Greer. I am here with the Reverend Boyoung Lee, Ph.D., Dean of the Faculty at Iliff School of Theology. Thank you. Malhai Theology is a production of St. John's Cathedral, a welcoming community of faith in the Episcopal tradition in Capitol Hill in Denver, Colorado.